The Guardian. Hello, I'm Hugh Muir. Welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, changes at the top of The Sun and The Independent. And at BBC One, what challenges face the new recruits? An internet-only ad scoops the top prize in Cannes. Is this the beginning of the end for the 30-second spot? The Voice will be back for a third series, but not in its current form, says the BBC. What form could it take? And Rebecca Nicholson is here to talk about ten stone testicles. Big news, big opinions, and one man's outsized tackle. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And with me in the studio this week are Ollie Mann, one half of the Sony award-winning podcast Answer Me This, former radio executive and journalist Sam Steele, and for our first story... We have Media Guardian reporter Josh Halliday. Thanks to all of you. Um, but before we begin, it's been a strange week. A load of journalists were sent to track whistleblower Edward Snowden. Um, they ended up on a 12-hour flight from Moscow to Havana. He wasn't in it. They had no in-flight drinks to entertain them either. Nightmare. And I want, want to know from you, what nightmare journeys have you had? I'd probably have to go back to when I was a researcher on The Culture Show, actually. And I would say trying to get Russell Brand to turn up on time and talk into a camera was probably the biggest challenge of my professional career. Uh, that was a day of following him around Oxford. And this was at the absolute height of his powers as well, when he was like a rock star. He'd come out of a car and get mobbed by women. And it was, it was actually impossible and incredibly frustrating. So I'd, I'd probably go with that. And did he uh, speak to you or did he blank you? He blanked me because uh, although I do have some sizable cleavage, not sizable enough for his liking, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> but he did, he did speak a little bit to the producer when he could be bothered. Sam, any wild goose chases you can recall? Oh, I can recall many, actually, in my days at Radio 1, going to Ibiza, chasing around, trying to make sure that the DJs all got to their shows and did their thing on time and relatively sober. But I think... The longest wild goose chase I ever endured was at Ikea, strangely enough, an eight-hour trip around Ikea. I spent four hours really getting everything written down on their little um, notepads, and somebody took my trolley in the market, and I looked around and it was gone, and I had to start all over again. That's a criminal offence, isn't it? Or a really cruel trick to play on someone. (laughs) So it it literally took me eight hours to get out of Ikea. Josh, what's your lost cause? I I went to Dis, which is near Ipswich, uh, in pursuit of a story. Um, Dis is, is, I can confirm, not as glamorous as Havana or Ibiza or uh, or indeed Russell Brand, uh, and I probably wouldn't go back. But I'm allowed to say that because I'm from Bradford, so yeah. So what you like on here, I, I've been blessed. I, I went uh, chasing uh, one person to Rio, who turned out not to be there, wow. um, and another one to Barbados. And that was great because we couldn't actually fly back to London for another four days. So we had to find things to do in Sandy Lane, You're Barbados. joking. I, I want your job. It was hell, but uh, hey, you get over it. Right, well, this week saw the changeover of not one, but two editors on UK titles, The Sun and The Independent. Uh, Let's start with The Sun. Let's start with you, Josh. David Dinsmore's taken over from Dominic Moen after four years uh, in the job. Dinsmore's joined the paper at a particularly demanding time. There are nine staff currently involved in police investigations. And, of course, the upcoming launch of The Sun's online paywall, that's in August. Dinsmore describes the paper facing challenging but exciting times. Uh, Then he would, wouldn't he? Josh, uh, where do you think The Sun is right now? What kind of challenge does he face? It's been the the most bruising twelve months I think in the Sun's in the almost fifty year history in the past in the past year. Dominic Moen has done a, a, a relatively good job in in steadying the ship during police raids, a fortnight of police raids uh, early last year. Uh, no one knew whether the Sun would continue to exist this time uh, last year. Uh, now David Dinsmore has come in uh, and he 
is really ready to uh, take the newspaper into its next chapter, which involves, as you said, the online paywall in August, which is built around Premier League highlights, sharing it with sister titles, The Times and, and The Sunday Times. Uh, and of course, the big Rupert Murdoch demerger of his, of his entire newspaper empire, which formally happens uh, this Friday. But why couldn't Moen do that? Why did that need a fresh hand at the tiller? Interestingly, News Corporation hasn't said too much about why Moen couldn't have done that a position. He, he will continue to be inside Murdoch's empire. He'll take a, a sort of non-job almost of, of advising the chief executive of News International, uh, sorry, of New News Corporation, which is the publishing division of um, News Corporation. He hasn't got a formal title as yet. News Corporation so didn't announce that on Friday, which was... Uh, Interest, an interesting move, and the press release announcing his departure also didn't have a, a supporting quote from Rupert Murdoch, which is again interesting. We don't know what quite what to read into that as yet. But Dinsmore has got a lot of experience in, in studying uh, News International in difficult times. He, he, he was editor of the Scottish Sun for a couple of years. He introduced Rupert Murdoch to Alex Salmond, uh, and we know how that relationship went. He was brought back down to London uh, for News International to be its director of operations and, and sort of uh, uh, keep the sun sailing through as, mm. as during the mm. Leveson inquiry and as it battled these uh, ongoing police investigations. So I think he, he's seen as a, a clean pair of hands, an experienced journalist, uh, and very much a sun man. For, for Sounds very corporate, though, doesn't it? Because normally when the editor of The Sun gets the bullet, it's because Rupert thinks the paper's become a bit dull. Well, the paper is as vibrant as I think it has been you know, in the past year. It was only a few months ago when the, the Sun uh, angered Buckingham Palace by printing the pictures of Prince Harry naked in Las Vegas. That's a classic Sun anti-establishment move. But I think one where the Sun slipped up big time in the past couple of months is, is the death of Margaret Thatcher. You'll remember the following day it printed the, the almost banal headline uh, Maggie dead in the Ritz, which... It was old by 4pm the previous day and it was really, really surprising for the son to do that. And do you think Rupert notices that sort of thing from uh, his eerie thousands of miles away? I think when such a big, there's such a big national event, Rupert will expect the sun to stand up and stand out from all the rest. And that's quite right. The sun's been doing that throughout its history. In the Sun newsroom in Wapping, there's a, there's framed copies of uh, standout sun pages from you know its past four decades. Uh, and I think everyone will have expected the Thatcher front page to have gone on there, but it just didn't hit, hit the grade in the end. Ollie, let me bring you in. Let's talk about this paywall because it said the sun needs to. Uh attract more than 300,000 subscribers if it's going to cover the 30 million cost of the Premier League deal. Mm. Do you think that's a go? Is that going to happen? I think it depends. Well, look, football is obviously a great driver of these things. And, you know, Sky has proved that time and again. Um, But I think it's a case of how they bundle it up, possibly with Sky Sports and all that sort of thing, which I don't think they've clarified yet. The point is, I think, whether it does or doesn't, it's all a bit of a subterfuge anyway, because it's football fans. It's nothing to do with people paying for news content, which is the battle Mm. that newspapers are trying to get over online. I think everyone pretty much would now conclude that it's a a battle you're going to lose unless you have a very soft-metered paywall like The Telegraph are doing. This may work, but so what? I mean, we know football fans pay a lot to watch clips of football, but what does that prove? It's, it's to me, nothing to do with with selling newspapers, really. But, Ollie, wasn't there... um there was some research published recently that young professionals in their 20s don't mind paying for content online. And in fact, it could be that Murdoch has the last laugh because uh, they're growing up in, a, in an environment where cheap free content is not 
generally as good as the paid for content um, on the ice on the apps, the iStore. You know, they they sort of don't mind paying incrementally for content. Yeah, but it's at such a low rate, isn't it? If you look at Spotify and Netflix and stuff like that, if you actually divvy up pay per click, what people are watching, what they're getting for that money, and they're prepared to pay that, but that's a monthly subscription of a fiver to cover all their entertainment. Well, how much um, is Murdoch charging for his news? Well, the thing he he may be able to do very well out of the football, but is that then to the detriment of Sky? Because are those same people going to grow up to spend sixty pound a month on their Skybox if they're used to paying five pounds to watch all they want on the Sun? And and, and to what extent do you have to give people? added value to get them to pay because obviously there's so much that they can get that's free already how do you make that differentiation i think going mobile is part of it uh, if the sun do a very good mobile website around these football clips i think that the idea of people actually sitting in stadiums looking at the clips on their phone might be or sitting in the pub on the saturday or whatever it is uh, especially if they can't access the subscription tv uh, i think that's that's definitely a goer but like i say what's it got to do with the paper really well, we shall be looking and see, see what happens and how successful that is. But Josh, let's talk about The Independent, because uh, the former editor there, Chris Blackhurst, has been promoted to group content editor for all of the titles. And the new editor of The Indie is Amal Rajan. Um, what do we know about him? Amal Rajan, he, he's had a remarkable rise to the editor's chair of The Independent. Only six years ago, he was the mic boy, a sort of enthusiastic, boisterous young chap sat on the uh, uh, with the audience on Channel 5's Right Stuff yeah. uh, uh, and and then six years later he, he's the editor of The Independent and it was back on the Right Stuff that he met Simon Kellner uh, the previous editor of The Independent who who saw the potential clearly gave him a job on The Indian and he's just continued to rise. I think his star began to shine when uh, the Lebedevs took over. We know that Evgeny Lebedev um, likes young talent likes uh, looking, um, promoting young talent. There was Archie Bland the, the former deputy yeah. editor now yeah. And Ollie Duff as well, who's taken over at the Eye. Amol has done a good job on Independent Voices, which is its sort of rival to comment is free, if you like. Uh, I think taking over as editor is a completely different job, obviously. He's, he, he's not got much background in hard news. We'll see how he fares there. But I think it's a it's an exciting move from Lebedev. He likes shaking things up a little bit. And, of course, it's all ahead of the, the expected launch of London Live in the next couple of years, the TV station for the capital. Ollie, he's the first non-white editor of a national newspaper, mainstream national newspaper. Is that important? No, I don't think it is really, but I think it's good that it isn't, if you know what I mean. Um, I don't think it's why he's been appointed in some sort of reverse positive discrimination way. Uh, and I think, it, I mean, of course, it, it's worthy of comment to notice, but I, to me, it doesn't seem like a particularly controversial or landmark thing. And he's certainly not someone who, who has said that he's particularly going to be reflecting his ethnicity in the way he edits the paper. I think possibly more important is that he has come from the digital project, actually. Again, mm. it's kind of all about digital, isn't it? The Independent doesn't seem to me to be still a website that's a destination for anyone. It's one you might chance across if The Guardian or The Telegraph or The BBC aren't running the story that you're Googling. That's not really good enough. Sam, do you uh, ch- happen across The Independent time time still? No, no, not really. Uh, it's not really on my radar. But I, I think it, it is noteworthy that uh, there hasn't been a non-white editor of a mainstream British newspaper to date. That's quite astounding, really. Well, it says a lot about Fleet Street as was. Um, what about Chris Blackhurst? Why, why, why move him? He seemed to be doing quite a good job. Blackhurst did seem to be doing quite a good job. He's only been in the job two years. He's returned hard news to the front page of The Independent, which a lot of people said that they, they clearly missed. I mean, sales have been plummeting at The Independent still. Uh, it's hard to turn that ship around. But uh, he's returned hard news to the front page, as I say. And now he's taken a, a more senior position, integrating the, the new uh, uh, upcoming TV station with 
the Evening Standard, uh, the Independent and the Independent on Sunday, which is no mean feat. But I think if anyone's going to do it, then Chris Blackhurst is the man to do it uh, inside Lebedev Towers. Okay, new people in charge uh, in in many different institutions at the BBC. Charlotte Moore is to be the new controller of BBC One. Uh, She was a commissioning editor for documentaries and she's been covering um, as the controller since Danny Cohen was promoted to director of television in April. Are you expecting big things of her? Well, it's an interesting appointment, actually, because Charlotte's background is is almost entirely factual content. She's been commissioning uh, documentaries, uh, mostly factual documentaries, at the BBC now since 2009. She uh, made her way inside the BBC underneath Richard Klein. He's the former controller of BBC Four. So she's got a real hard-line factual leaning, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how she deals with the BBC One's popular talent and shows like Strictly Come Dancing and The Voice, um, which is sort of flagged in competition with Britain's Got Talent on Saturday nights. Uh, that's one big uh, task she'll have in her intro uh, for the next year. What she'll do with Panorama and current affairs programmes is again interesting, as the new Director General Tony Hall said he, he wants the BBC to get to grips with that and return it to its former glory. I think all has yet to be revealed behind Charlotte Moore's appointment because Mark Lindsay, who's the Director of Entertainment, was, was the uh, keen favourite and he's sure to be disappointed with this. So only one of her big jobs is going to be to do something about The Voice, because it's been trailing Britain's Got Talent, hasn't it? It has, yeah. It's been slaughtered on Saturday nights oh, by shocking. Simon Cowell. It's so and dull, though, it's isn't it? It's because the judges are so irritating, though, isn't it? It's Sack because Jesse the BBC J, can't do anything where it allows uh, any level of... Um, it has to wave its little finger, you know. It, it mm. has to have a little positive uh, message. It has to be auntie. It can't do what Simon Cowell does brilliantly, which is ridicule people who are ridiculous. No, but it's too sincere at the minute, don't you think? Absolutely. That's what's wrong with it. Yeah. But it can never work on the BBC for that reason. They would not be allowed to say, gosh, you're rubbish, shut up. Mm. You know, I, I've watched episodes where people can't sing, they're out of tune, you've got your fingers in your ears, and then the judges turn around with a benign smile and go, oh, that was amazing. But what do they do, Ollie, in that situation? They can't, do they ship out of that kind of programming yes. on the base they can't do it properly? Yes, I think they should ship out of that kind of programming. I think it's very well covered by all the commercial broadcasters. And I think... You are allowed to poke fun at people. And yeah. the BBC are just not allowed to poke fun at people. I, think, I mean, I'm a great defender of the BBC doing populist programming. I think that's very important. If they don't do it, if they didn't have EastEnders and Strictly Come Dancing then clearly we'd get a situation potentially like we had in Greece where politicians can say, well, it's boring public service news content that no one's watching, so we'll just pull the plug. So I think it's important they do populist programming. But in the case of, say, EastEnders and Strictly Come Dancing, there was some risk involved in setting those shows up. They're shows that commercial broadcasters Mm. wouldn't have Mm. done. The Voice was bought off... Uh, you know, an international format off the to. shelf. Just spent loads of money on it. Anyone could have done it. It could be on ITV. It could be on Channel Five. Everyone involved with it is intensely irritating, and it is a waste of twenty-two million pounds when you think what they could be doing with that—that's innovative and that rewards homegrown talent. So, has it just lost the plot? Has it de- degenerated? Because the figures weren't as ba- were never as bad as they are now. I think it has become very safe because you're never ever going to see anything controversial on that programme and, and that's what people tune into those programmes to see to have some water cooler conversation the next day about did you see the dancing dog or did the you see the egg pelting in the final sorry the egg pelting in the final <laughs> of Britain's Got Talent that would never happen on The Voice would it never no, well, a, I don't think that they would excite that much passion in their audience one way or the other well, I can't wouldn't be able to find the studio in Salford either so that's, uh, that's another <laughs> <laughs> but have you ever the next day said did you see about anything on The Voice mm. 
Did you see the chairs swivel round is the most exciting. Okay, so that's the on the agenda. <laughs> the chair swivelling and the egg throwing. And actually, yeah. I, may I just, as a brief adjunct to what I was saying before, it's not even about the genre. It's about buying off the shelf at all. I don't think it's something the BBC should be doing. No, you know, they've right. done it too many times. Done it with Hole in the Wall and Total Wipeout. They could be absolutely anywhere. They are all over the world. There's nothing distinctive in BBC about them. And even in buying talent from other channels, like when they bought Graham Norton, you know, yes, the Graham Norton show is good. It's exactly the same show it was on Channel 4. Why did they have to do that? Why didn't they create their own Graham Norton. I think that's a real problem at the BBC. Can I can I ask a question then, um, Ollie? I think you're making a really good point. What should the BBC do? What if they shouldn't be buying off the shelf? What do you think their strength is? Their strong suit? I think I'm not saying they shouldn't buy from indies and from companies that aren't their own. But if they can't originate their own ideas in house, they should be originating ideas with indies and supporting new talent and new ideas. The problem is that the whole industry takes its lead from the BBC. The ITV and Channel Four provide a commercial alternative to the BBC. If the BBC is then just taking their formats and spending more money on them, it all becomes very insidious. I think they need to create new things. And you know what? There's some really intelligent people at the BBC who spend all I've worked there who spend all day sitting around a table discussing endlessly this kind of thing in this sort of Oxbridge way. And then they go and buy the voice. <laughs> All right, well, message to Charlotte Moore listen to your people. With that, I have to end the first part of our podcast. Sam, Ollie, and Josh, thanks very much. Okay, welcome back, and let's look at some of the other news of the week. Um, last week, you may remember John Plunkett was in the south of France for the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity. And there was big success for internet only campaigns. Let's hear a clip from one of them now. This is Dumb Ways to Die, produced by the Melbourne agency McCann for the Australian Metro Service. Set fire to your hair, poke a stick at a grizzly bear, eat medicine that's out of date, use your private parts as piranha bait. Dumb Ways to Die, so many dumb Come on, sing along. Ollie, it's, it's a long advert, really. What did you think? It's a really long advert. It's three minutes 26, which is, I think, really interesting because it shows the difference uh, in the online space between you know what advertising traditionally was and what it can be now. Obviously, we're, we're increasingly seeing things like with on Vine, you can have a six-second advert, but also you can have these very long-form things which aren't about, crucially, are not about topping the advert with the logo. It's not until three minutes and 26 seconds into that video that you find out that it's uh, paid for by the metro system. It's still quite long for online, though, isn't it? Three minutes is a long time to watch something online. It's even longer than TV. Yeah, well, I mean, it's about the length, though, of an optimum length for a YouTube video, though, isn't it? And that, that's the thing. They're tapping into something that you would share anyway, not because it's an advert, not because necessarily you even agree with the message of this, which is don't jump in front of trains by mistake, Yeah. Uh, but that actually you just find it entertaining as a song. And then, oh, by the way, this is brought to you by this company. And they're, they're taking the targeted risk there, the calculated risk, that... A lot of people are going to turn it off before the end. They're never going to find out who it was paid for by. That's antithesis to how a lot of advertisers think. But the point is, the people who make it to the 3 minute 26 mark love it. And then they get the message. And they're going to share it with their friends. And it's they a- love the message, yeah. yeah. It, of course, it picked up the top award, the integrated Grand Prix. Did you, Sam, did you think it was that good? Yes, I think it was faultless because the song was perfect. Perfectly pitched, very now. And, and the cartoon illustration is uh, is very of the moment I think it really is going to connect with its target which I would assume to be sort of 12 to 22 maybe a bit older and it will go viral and it did go viral I am a little surprised that it beat 
the Channel 4 Olympi- uh, Paralympian. They got a gold lion. Yeah, but it didn't get the... They, this got, yeah, you know, yeah, it's got the big one. Which... So although I, I thought that the um, Dumb Ways to Die was good, I thought that the Channel 4's Paralympian um, film uh, short was amazing because it completely changed the view of the entire country about what it meant yeah, to yeah. compete in what was always seen as the second-class kind of, let's give them some sympathy, and that tagline, superhumans, was was brilliant, genius. You, you call it a short, but of course it was a couple of minutes long. Uh, does the... The 30-seconder that we're used to have a chance against this kind of film? Do you think this is the, the long adverts, the way forward now? Well, I think it's interesting because I think that the short form ads are the ones that you try and skip through whilst you're waiting to see something else, aren't they? They're now the pre-roll. Uh, whereas a three-minute ad, the hope is that the people who are watching it have chosen to watch it. it you're watching it because it's on your timeline. You haven't even gone looking for it. Someone shared it with you. So it depends what the advertisers are going for, really. Um, I think if you want to still make a quick impact with a humorous... Uh, idea then you can do that in six seconds or 30 seconds and but the, but you have to acknowledge that people are going to skip past it to mm. get onto what they want whereas with this kind of thing it's something that people want to share and engage with because they love it it's a completely different sort of vibe that they get from it but any more effective or is it just creative people enjoying themselves and uh, indulging themselves a bit well, it's map making, map making in a volcanic landscape at the moment, really, isn't it? Because there are so many ways that people can bump into your brand. It has to be horses for courses. If you know, if you know that there are significant numbers of young people who are doing their homework and have three, four, five, six minutes to burn because they don't want to do their homework, then target them with some longer bits and pieces. You know, but if you know that you're trying to get in front of a busy professional older person who's only got 30 seconds then you know that's what you'll do and I and I guess that audience insight has to dictate the format more and more. All right moving on ITV have purchased the US production company Think Factory Media. It's the third US company ITV have bought in the last six months. Ollie what are they up to? Why do you think that they're looking to the US? Well, I sort of return a bit to what I said about the BBC and that I I kind of would prefer ITV being such a big beast in this country to be developing their own ideas and putting money where their mouth is. But, you know, at least as a commercial organisation, they have more of an excuse to do this kind of thing. I think the the, the fact is that whilst many of their big formats are owned by the likes of uh, Talkback and Psycho and uh, I can't remember who produces Downton Abbey, is it Company, one of those companies? Uh, Because of that, uh, it, it clearly makes sense they want to own more of the content that they're showing on their own channel. That's what they're selling advertising against and that's what they can then sell elsewhere. So that, that works in the UK for developing ITV studios, and I guess it works in the US for owning some of the content they can sh- then show yeah. over here and sell over there as well. And I wonder if in digital terms it sort of makes sense when you get to the kind of platforms that we're seeing with Love Film and Netflix where you've got international platforms owned by big corporates. Why not have another big corporate owner that owns the content itself uh, because you can sell it in every country? I mean, Sam, the ITV seems to be in good shape here. Can you see them being players in the States? Well, they need to have a quite a big war chest to crack that market, unless they're, you know, they're, they're trying to create a nice niche PSB space for themselves with, you know, with things like Mr. Selfridge and Downton Abbey and um, just come in the back door that way. There's a perception of ITV here, especially when compared with the BBC, that they won't have in the States. And so in a way, it is kind of virgin territory, isn't it? It's, it's almost a chance for them to start again in, in America. But our market is so tiny in the UK compared to uh, American television and and American TV culture is quite complex. Um, So, yeah, they'll go from being, you know, big, shiny, flawed, Saturday night, spectacular kind of channel here to to what? What, what, How would they reinvent themselves in the States? That would be quite an interesting 
uh, process to watch. And it's such a tough nut, nut to crack, isn't it? It's great in terms of benefits if you can do it, but really difficult to do it. And actually, I think, as far as I understand, they've struggled a bit with I'm a Celebrity, which they do own, selling that around the world. You know, obviously works in some countries, but they tried it in America, didn't they? Didn't really take mm-hmm. off. So. Because they're uh, all celebrity shows, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Just wall-to-wall celebrity shows. Um, so, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I mean, I think they're very strong in this market, and that is their strength, really. Um, and, you know, when these things go wrong, it's a bit like the BBC buying Lonely Planet. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, the company that they're buying, Think Factory Media, they, they own that show with Kevin Costner, don't they? Yeah. doing jolly well. That's um, so I'm sure Hatfield it's perfectly and McCoy's. Yeah, there you go, that one. Uh, so I'm sure it's perfectly, perfectly thought through. And finally this week... Let's go all techie. ITN's relaunched its mobile news app for iPhone and iPad. The free app shares the responsive design of ITN's website with an emphasis on video. It's what we all, we're all trying to do, I suppose. Ollie, does the world need another news app? I think ITN probably needs a better news app because the old one really was rubbish. Every time I tried to play a video on it, it crashed. But I think they should tread carefully with this. They're a bigger brand online than, say, ITV News is and Channel 4 News is. And that's not why ITV and Channel 4 and Channel 5 pay them, is it? They're they're supposed to be in the background providing news for these organisations to then brand themselves and have ownership of. And obviously it's their own strategy internally that they get their name out there as a news provider. But like I say, I'd be a bit annoyed, I think, if I was ITV News, that ITN were trying to rival my own products. I mean, presumably ITV News want their own all-singing, all-dancing app. And they've even got a tab on the ITN app called And Finally, which, you know, is the news (laughs) at 10, isn't it? I know that it's a sort of generic term in journalism, but the public think of it as the news at 10 thing. I'm quite surprised that they've been quite so bold as with this. I guess they're building on the the platform they have on YouTube with 107,000 subscribers, but you don't need another place to find videos of the news. But if the videos work, as they didn't on the old app, then, uh, you know, it's welcome to have a place where they're all in, in one place and they're regularly updated if you work in the media whether the public need that I think is another thing Sam what could they give you that you haven't got already oh I I like the way that they they group and tab stories I think that that's quite fun and they use lots of random words that aren't particularly newsy um, and I do disagree with you Ollie I I love news apps um, and I like reading lots of different ones because they all have a slightly di- different subtext to them so I, I can't have enough of these lovely news apps and I and I like I think ITN's redesign has made it much easier to use I think the strength actually is that they focused it around video they've at least acknowledged that they are a television mm-hmm. news company a problem that even the BBC have is that you know sometimes you look at their news pages and the articles around them are just not up to scratch basically they've got all the footage and they've got the audio but they're description of it is very subpar to what you'd then read in a broadsheet newspaper yeah, um, whereas ITN aren't now pretending really to have the story a bit like the Sky News website yeah. they've, they've pretty much got a, a summary and then the news clip and it's free as well isn't it and the best things are and, and as a rule of thumb I think basically you should just uh, work on the basis that if it's produced by the Guardian then you stick with that and you'll be okay <laughs> Sam Ollie thanks very much Okay, time to talk telly, and Rebecca Nicholson is here. And in keeping with our wish to take the programme way up market, we're going to talk about ten stone testicles. A man with ten stone testicles. I'm so happy that I'm always the person who does this. Uh, (laughs) Keeps it classy. It sounds ghastly. Well, obviously they've gone for... It's a Channel 4 documentary, and obviously they've gone for the... uh, attention-grabbing title. Uh, Lots of people were watching it and and tweeting about it and saying, oh, I can't believe what I've just seen. And actually, I think the title is a public service. I mean, it very much tells you what you're getting. So anyone who's claiming to be shocked by this 
really needs to consider that Channel 4 have taken this into account. Did they actually take it beyond the freak show? They did. I mean, obviously, with that kind of name that you're expecting something of a freak show. But they did take it beyond. It kind of developed into a documentary that looked at the American health system, really. And it was done very sensitively. It was handled very well. Do they actually need that kind of title? It obviously works because um, I understand that four million people watch, which Almost is about, the, four million, about yeah. the same as the one show gets, yeah. which is on early evening and obviously uh, meant to be populist. Do they need those titles to get people to watch? I mean, BBC Three do it all the time, don't they? I think so. I mean, that that's really what's drawing people in, isn't it? I mean, we can we can talk about how great it is as a, an examination of American healthcare and all of that kind of stuff, but really people want to see a man with 10 stone testicles. And if they learn something at the end, brilliant. But how does it, why was that such a good programme? And how, how did it, how did they manage to progress it from being as ghoulish as it could have been to well, it, being a good documentary? It was just handled well. I mean, it wasn't just, you know how often these documentaries feature a kind of carnivalesque soundtrack and mm. It, it, it's not it's not done with respect this was very much done with respect he acknowledged that his condition made people want to look at him and talk about him and then it became about the difficulties in in getting this growth removed and and so it was it was more than just a shocker could have been a freak show let's go to program some people describe as a freak show question time well this was supposed to be the question time of the year was it? Yeah. Boris Johnson, Russell Brand, Melanie Phillips. And did it panel. turn out that way? No, it really didn't. Um, I, I, I didn't mention Tessa Jowell and Ed Davey there. They didn't really say a lot, so I'm not sure that they warranted a mention. I but think someone tweeted, is Ed Davey still there? Is he awake? He did say something about um, student fees and how actually students now were paying back less uh, they were paying back less because they were paying it over a longer time period, when really that just means you're paying back more over a longer time period. His his mathematics were slightly suspect. But it was strangely... It, was, it had its moments, but Boris Johnson was quite muted. He wasn't really on form. So it was left to Russell Brand, who did his Man of the People thing very well, and it had a rowdy audience as well, mm-hmm. which I think really helped. And of course, Melanie Phillips. Didn't he refer to Dimbleby as ear mate? <laughs> Did he? There was a lot of, are you, uh, well, I can't remember what he said, he called someone man or something in the audience. He was very down with the kids. But you'd have thought there was quite a, an explosive mixture there, quite a cocktail of people. Uh, why, if the sparks didn't fly, why? I think people just had very high expectations. As I said, Boris wasn't really on form. He was quite quiet. Um, but I think it was a very good episode. I mean, people's expectations were very high. So maybe that's what it is. But I thought it was very enjoyable. It seemed to me that part of the reason that it fell a bit flat was that everyone was going out of their way to uh, to, to agree with Russell Brand. Yes, and I have my own feelings about Russell Brand. I think he was very likeable in uh, on Question Time in a way that I didn't think he was particularly likeable in the the clip from the American news show that went viral. I had, mm. I had mm. problems with that, um, particularly the way he treated the women there. Um, and there were questions of respect, but he he did, I mean, as you said, he was doing his man of the people thing and it worked well. He was just saying what most people think. So that's a big BBC production, an even huger BBC production uh, with Glastonbury. And of course, I imagine we'll be reading loads of stories about everyone having gone to Glastonbury. Yes. Maybe, uh, maybe even Mr Dimbleby. Yeah, know, I'm, I'm one of those people who's going to Glastonbury. But um, I, yeah, to summarise how much Glastonbury is on the BBC, I think I can just say loads. 
often <laughs> there's a lot that's great thank you thank you for that so yeah so, so, so i'm I, gonna go now if yeah. i'll buy the tv listings <laughs> and, and i'll look and it would just say glastonbury loads, loads. on thank all the time cheers well, for that so, <laughs> i'm a professional as i say as i seem to say every week um so it's on bbc3 bbc4 bbc2 over the weekend from, from friday it's on the one show um, there's a one show special on Friday. There's a Songs of Praise special from Glastonbury on <laughs> oh, Sunday. Oh, you're joking. No. <laughs> you're having a laugh. It's on Radio 1, 1 Extra, Radio 2, 6 Music. There's full red button coverage uh, and there are live streams of six stages online. What has Radio 3 done to be left out of the mix? Have they upset someone? I don't someone? know. I bet they'll pop up anyway. I'm sure they won't be abstaining. But do you think that, um, will it justify that amount of coverage? It's always hard to say. I'm, I have always watched it as a viewer when I'm not there. And I might even add that I sort of enjoy watching it on telly more than the experience of being there. It's a lot more comfortable, better toilets generally a nicer experience but this year I'm, I'm going so I don't know what do you expect from it as well do you want it to be on one of those archetypal well-produced BBC productions or do uh, I was looking at Mark Radcliffe was talking about his role and saying that when they started it was just complete shambles him with a microphone sitting on a bale of hay and, yeah. that, and that now it's actually quite slick but is that what you want well I remember it being on channel four when I was a teenager and I don't I don't remember it being a complete shambles then I think there's going to be some post-olympic slickness there you know they've done a big event on this scale and i think well on a bigger scale but harry jumping out of a helicopter or something yeah i don't know maybe the rolling stones but the rolling stones are are so big possibly one of the biggest acts to ever headline um glastonbury so i expect that it will it will compete and they're talking about an hour maybe an hour i've seen reported yeah i think so which is is more than we were originally promised or it was originally suggested that we might get i think there was talk they might do a blur and cut it short Oh, well, I'll be looking forward to that, and, and, and particularly to Dizzy Rascal, or as Jeremy Paxson once called him, Mr Rascal. <laughs> um, not the Prime Minister, it says in today's Radio Times. Rebecca, thanks very much, and uh, have a good time there. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Josh Halliday, Ollie Mann, Sam Steele, and Rebecca Nicholson. Don't forget, last week's Can Lions special is still available. Just subscribe to our feed through a podcast app, or follow us on SoundCloud. But that's it. My name's Hugh Muir. The producer is Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.